Hello and welcome to Making UX Work, the Give Good UX podcast. I'm your host, Joe Natoli, and our focus here is on folks like you doing real, often unglamorous, UX work in the real world. You'll hear about their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. My guest today is Peter Kaiser, a user experience designer and developer with over 20 years of professional experience. What's particularly interesting here is that Peter started his career making things with his hands, which is an altogether different kind of user experience, but absolutely informs the digital products that he creates. The result is an emphasis on things that are highly functional and beautifully designed. Peter describes himself as creative, collaborative, curious, opinionated, and optimistic. And as I think you'll hear in this conversation, he is all of that and more. Here's my conversation with Peter Kaiser on Making UX Work. So, Peter, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for, for joining. It's been quite a while since you and I talked in person. Yeah, I'm trying to remember when it was. I think I was still at uh, the large nonprofit Catholic Relief Services where I was the digital director for many, many years, for nearly 15 years. Which is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I think we were talking about actually doing a podcast, weren't we? I, I think we were. I think we were talking about <laughs> I do, actually. Um, so here we are. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. Well... Podcasts are having a moment right now. I mean, they have been for a while. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. It's And it's, well, let me ask you, why do you think that is? You know, a little bit of it is it's part of the democratization of technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, you know, when, when I'm probably a little bit older than you are, but when, when we were young, we'd listen to, you know, somebody on the radio, a broadcaster, you know, a woman or a man and, yeah. and think, oh, that's cool. But but we had no access to being able to do something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you can make an, a movie on an iPhone. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've come a long way. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think that that's part of it. Uh, I also think that increasingly people just want more control over their information. I mean, that, and that's a double-edged sword, I think, a little bit, because there are forces out there at play, and, and I don't want to sort of get into the sorry state of our, uh, of our you know, society. <laughs> yeah, we'll be here forever. <laughs> right. But, but <laughs> you can, you know, you know all you got to do is just look out the window. Yeah, I think, and I agree with you, I, I always wonder if part of this isn't people just sort of trying to take back the truth in a way the the state of sort of broadcasts right where where you know the the few get to dictate to the many i mean that that started to end you know with the internet but yeah i have to wonder if if a lot of this isn't just people saying you know what i'm i'm tired of this and i i i want something else i want something that with more depth with more humanity with more truth you know so they're doing it absolutely i also think you know, look, uh, I come from the world of the maker. So I started my creative career as a, you know, as a kid, when I was 12 years old, making stuff with my hands. And 
Um, so I, you know, I'm a child of the sixties. Uh, I was born in the, in the, you know, in 1957. So I, I grew up through the sixties and, you know, as a, as a young kid in the late sixties, I started making stuff actually out of leather with my hands. And then I started making handmade pottery and I did that professionally for a long, long time. So I came through that sort of studio crafts movement. Yeah. I saw that in your, in your profile. Yeah. The do it yourself kind of thing. And I think now with technology, we're in this new 21st century age of do it yourself. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so I think podcasts are really part of that uh, in a way, the access to the technology. Um, I mean, even 10 years ago, it would be hard to do what we're doing right now. Oh, no question. No question. It was, it was sort of a, a privileged <laughs> position, you know, to be able to, to be able to put stuff like this out into the world. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. So let me ask you a question. I mean, I, I, I saw on your profile, you know, you, the studio craftsman uh, bit with handcrafted pottery and things like that. I mean, that was from the looks of it, it was like 18 years of your life. So, and as you said, you started working with your hands at a very early age. So one of the things I've been eternally curious about, okay, in terms of, especially as digital design has replaced print design, mm-hmm. right? Where there's no, there's no tangible thing you hold in your hands right? When, when this is done, aside from tapping it on a screen, maybe. Right. Do you feel like the absence of that, the absence of tactile senses, contributes to this sense of, man, I don't want to get huge here, but, but it, it, it always, it's always on my mind I don't know this, this sense of, of hollowness, emptiness. I don't know what to call it. Well, um, I'm going to answer the question, I think from sort of the other side, yeah. which is I have always felt that I am very good at what I do because I spent so much of my life basically defining user experience by creating actual physical objects that people used every day. Agreed. Um, So I made pottery uh, and before that, you know, handcrafted leather goods that people that were functional, that people used. So wallets, belts, um, handbags, and then in pottery, very functional pottery that was always really uh, intended to be used in the preparation and serving and enjoyment of meals, of, of good food and drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you make, I don't know, a thousand mug, coffee mugs a year that somebody is going to drink their morning coffee out of, you pay attention to details like what does the lip feel like on a person's lip as they're drinking their morning coffee? Or what does a cereal bowl feel like in their hand as they're, as they're you know eating their morning cereal? And uh, or what does that pitcher feel like when you pour orange juice out of it? Does the, is it weighted correctly? Is it balanced right? So you learn about, you know, really about the usability of things. And of course, you know, look, one of the Bibles for all of us, you know, UX designers is Don Norman's, the design of everyday things. Absolutely. That has that famous picture. I always laugh at this, that picture on the cover of the weird, Victorian teapot <laughs> where the spout does, you know, it was like, how can you pour something out of that? Exactly. <laughs> so I guess to, to answer your question, yeah, I think if you haven't spent time making products or objects that people actually use with their hands, I think in a way, maybe you miss out on 
fully understanding what user experience can be. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think there's a dimension missing. And I don't, you know, it's it doesn't, I don't know that it necessarily makes people, um, it's not a detriment to their, to their skill set, but I do think, like you're saying, there's a dimension of understanding mm-hmm. um, that's sort of not there. From a user's perspective, though, I mean, one of the things that I guess I'm trying to get at is when you use a digital product, to me, all right, and maybe this is because of my age as well, there is something missing. There is an, there is an element of use, of engagement, of feedback. I don't know what it is that is missing as opposed to when you use a physical product, you know, in your hand, whether that's a tool or a book um, or, you know, driving your car. It's like this thing about self-driving cars. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Part of the reason I hate it, I hate the idea of it. I think if I'm, if I'm being honest is that I don't want to let go of the experience of driving the car. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I, I think you see it even in, you know, the digitization of audio and music. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the audio files that I knew as a kid, you know, they wanted to hear that the sort of the warmth of the sound yeah. that, a, that a needle on, a, on vinyl has. I mean, and I knew audio files that were like, they were even crazy about the shape of the wire that was connecting their speaker. So mm-hmm. flat ribbon copper wire would transmit sound, you know, so there is, there's a lot of sort of tactile aspects to producing digital products. You know, Neil Young has been trying forever (laughs) to come up with, you know, this, this different uh, sort of compression scheme for audio for that reason. Mm -hmm. And I, I tend to agree with what he says in that there's an entire spectrum of sound that is missing Mm-hmm. from digital music. For instance, I refuse to use wireless headphones. Yeah. Because I've listened to them and and they do sound good, don't get me wrong, but to me there's a big chunk of of stuff on the spectrum that is that is missing for me. Right. It's almost like we've made it so clean that it's lost, you know, it's sort of we've cleaned even some of the life out of it. <laughs> yeah, 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 the humanity, the humanity sort of comes out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. I, yeah. I ran a small record label for a couple of years. It was like, I don't know, three or four years. And, um, one of my partners had a studio, so we used to record bands as well. Mm-hmm. So I've you know produced a handful of bands. And one of the things that, that I sort of in- insisted on, and we tried it both ways. Okay. But one of the things I started to insist on is that the band has to play live together. Mm. I don't know what that is. I don't have a name for it. All I know is that when you run separate tracks, when everybody tracks themselves by themselves, yeah, something dies, something goes away, yeah. and the music is perfect, and it's it's to a click track, and it's pristine, and all this stuff. There's something, something that punches you in the chest that's missing. It's not there anymore. Yeah, no, I, I mean, and, and I think, but I think the other thing with back to your question about what's missing with digital products, mm-hmm. so. And we, you know, we've been through in terms of sort of design approaches or design par- paradigms. We, you know, we've been through the skeuomorphic um, age of software design, where that note-taking software looks like, a, you know, lined ledger paper, yeah. um, and that though, you know, that audio interface has dials and stuff on it that looks like dials, even though they're 
digital controls. And so, uh, you know, there there is something kind of virtual about digital products. They're, they're, you know, you you can't actually touch them with your hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I'll be curious, like to fast forward in, I think probably 10, 15, 20 years, because I think the the physical screen is ultimately going to go away from a digital product perspective. I think we're going to wind up with, you know, interfaces that are maybe not, probably not true virtual reality interfaces, but mixed reality or augmented reality interfaces. So you're going to access the news feeds that you want to read kind of virtually through a pair of light field projection glasses that are basically going to beam that data directly into your retinas. Mm-hmm. I think that's ultimately where we're going. Do you think some of the sensory experience will come back in, in a vir- sort of virtual reality situation like that? Well, I think it, I think it can. I mean, that's sort of the promise of virtual reality is that it can be more immersive. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, are we going to get to a ready player one state? <laughs> <laughs> I hope, I, I hope not. Yeah, really. Cause that, that was a sort of a sorry commentary on society. <laughs> uh, great, you know, fun, fun to read, but, uh, and I thought the book was way better than the movie, but <laughs> yeah, I didn't read the book. Uh, the book is the book is really good. Um, yeah, I read the book first, actually. I, I, Interesting. Uh, uh, and I, um, I'm glad I did. Actually, uh, what was the core difference? Out of curiosity. Well, so the way that the group of five, you know, the um, meet, um, they don't meet in person nearly as soon in the book as they do in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they don't really meet in person till the very end of the book. Um, but you know, Spielberg had to, and, and the author of the book, um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but, um, had, you know, he was, he wrote the screenplay. So, uh, it, it was, it was a slightly, it was a pretty radically different storyline. I mean, the premise was the same and everything, but, but anyway, I, I, you know, I, I hope we're not at, we don't get, you know, the future isn't, you know, people who are sort of so walled off basically walking down the street, you know, living in their own world. I hope that whatever sort of augmented reality evolves, that it, it allows sort of a, a mutually beneficial coexistence between the real world and, uh, and, and the virtual world. Well, I agree with that. I mean, I think that's one of the, it's one of the sort of negative sides of, of the way we use technology right now is that there is a great degree of isolation. We've got a, a, a world full of people staring down into their phones. Yes. 20 out of 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know, and I, and I understand. <laughs> I've been plenty guilty of it myself. Right. And, right. and you have to really force yourself right. sort of not to do it because it's always there. I agree. Um, I had a, so I was on a podcast um, earlier this year. A friend of mine does a podcast with his brother um, about, um, it's called, um, the stories our robots tell us. And, <laughs> cool and title. yeah, it's a great, it's a great title. Um, I'll email you a link to the, to the podcast, but, um, and I, so I started listening to it and it's really about sort of how we inform our technology and how our technology informs us. 
Hmm. Um, and, uh, it's a, it's a fun conversation, uh, that these guys go through. So I, I listened to a couple episodes and I emailed this friend of mine and I said, you know, Hey, great. I've been enjoying it. Um, here's a question for an episode. Can robots make art? And he said, Oh, great idea. Well, you have a unique perspective on that, given your background, would you like to be a guest on it? <laughs> so, that sounds awesome. So I'll send you a link to that to that episode because it was it was curious, and this gets back to that sort of what's missing in digital products that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. To me, art, and and let's set aside the sort of the whole you know raging debate that has gone on in the you know is it art or is it craft? Because right, I, we won't go there. Yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> I don't want to go there. Um, because uh, there's so many, you know, permutations of that. But right, right. Um, uh, uh, to me, art is something that elicits an emotion from somebody, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, something that's hanging on the wall, whether it's something you listen to, whether it's something you read, whether it's something you watch on a screen, whether it's an object that you that you use. So it should elicit some sort of emotional response, which makes me think, well, the maker of that object should be able to experience emotion. And I'm not sure robots can yet. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We're not there yet. <laughs> We're certainly not there yet. And, and I think that's part of the problem uh, because you just, you just hit on something that to me is really important, that the maker needs to be able to experience emotion. I think that is one of my big hangups. Mm. You, you just gave it a, a name or, or a, a definition. I am constantly reading about you know, these, these automatic frameworks, okay. They create web layouts, they create interfaces, they create, um, you know, responsive grids and all this other stuff. It's, it's all tools and frameworks, tools and frameworks, tools and frameworks. And I feel like, look, you're, you're cutting out a massive part of, of the empathetic part of design that creates positive user experience. You can't not have human intervention because of what you just said. Yep. A machine does not experience emotion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it does, maybe it will in the future. Who knows? Yeah. But this, to me, I, I, I am really against, I suppose, uh, this increasing reliance and this sort of superhero fetish um, about technology doing its own work. I, I just, yeah. I think it's, I think it runs counter to everything that we do. I completely agree with you. I mean, look, I started writing HTML in, you know, the late um, 90s and, and I've, I've never used, you know, a WYSIWYG editor. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, 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 I'm a coder. I'm also, I'm a designer. I'm a coder. I'm one of those UX people that can, you know, do a lot of things because I've had to and I've been doing it a long time. And I, I love, I mean, frameworks have a purpose, tool, tools and, and front end tooling has a purpose. Um, I kind of bundle a lot of that stuff. And there isn't, you're, you're absolutely right. There's an oversized obsession with that stuff right now. I bundle that stuff into sort of, you know, design ops. There needs to be good, well thought out design operations, just the same way there needs to be good, well thought out DevOps, developer operations for a product team that's producing a product. You have to have it. But there's something very important that has to come before that. Mm-hmm. And that is thinking about, you know, 
It's a human being that's going to use this product. Um, And one of my big um, sort of bug, you know, things that that just drives me crazy is, so we have these great, you know, publishing platforms, WordPress, Drupal, you know, you name, you know, content management flavor of, of, of choice. Yeah. Nobody pays attention to what the user experience of the poor soul whose job it is, is to keep that website up to date with current content. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Nobody pays <laughs> Nobody attention to that. It. Nobody pays attention to it. It's insane. Dude, if I had a nickel for every time someone said to me, oh, it's just an admin. Yes, it's such. I would be a rich man. <laughs> that's craziness. <laughs> A human being has to use that part. No one cares. You just said it. No one gives a shit about how hard it is to use the tool. Nobody cares. Yep. And it's, you know, look, I've done enough, you know, custom Drupal development, custom WordPress development, you know, to know it's super easy. It's just laziness. Exactly. It's not, it's not considered sexy, you know, like, oh, there's no return on investment on sort of internal administrative user experience. That's such BS. I agree. Couldn't agree more. I mean, we build, you know, look, the firm that, you know, the firm I work for builds, you know, some great products, really big products. And, and of course the federal government right now loves Drupal. Um, Yeah which I think is a pain in the ass. I mean, I think it's, it's, it is, it's very powerful. And 90% of the federal government websites that are done with Drupal could be done with WordPress for half the, half the, half the amount of money. Oh, right. But that scares them. Yeah. yeah. That scares them. Yeah. Although interestingly <laughs> enough, you know, who uses the uses WordPress a lot in the federal government? Who? The state department. <laughs> are you kidding? No, I worked on a project <laughs> for them went there. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, The world is an interesting place. (laughs) So, yes. But anyway, nobody, you know, people don't pay attention to it. I don't know why. It's like even when, you know, sort of the usability, they're they're all stuck on, you know, what's the end user being presented with. And that's, you know, nobody is saying that that shouldn't, the user experience of that shouldn't be great. Right. But if you're if if the problem you're trying to solve and this gets sort of this is me with my developer hat on it's like what's the problem you're trying to solve oh we're trying to build a publishing platform <clears throat> where we can easily publish and disseminate information about our you know our government agency to the citizenry of the United States right well why wouldn't you want an administrative in- interface that made it easy for your federal employees to Publish that information. <laughs> right. No, exactly right. And, and and that's the right question. That's always the right question. Yeah. Okay. I, I've never once, well, I shouldn't say never once because when, in younger, when I was a younger man in my uh, early career, I certainly did a lot of sort of subservient projects where it's like, you want this? Okay, great. That's what yeah. we're going to do. Right. Um, but the majority of my career is companies coming to me and saying, we want to do this and we have this problem. And my sort of first order of business is, okay, well, what's really going on here? And, and a lot of times you find out with, with internal systems in particular, and I spend a lot of time, right, with, with enterprise organizations that have done some government work. What you find out is that the real issue isn't so much end user experience. The, the real issue, the things that are, that are really sticking in their, in their throats 
is the fact that they're bleeding time and money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, it's always because, as you just said, the attention paid to the internal administrative parts of whatever they use to, to do their jobs and deliver their services is sorely lacking. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we say, well, you have to fix this problem first because this other stuff is symptomatic of this problem. Right. You can't execute because your tool is garbage. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, well, I mean, you, you have to fix that first. And plenty of organizations that I've worked with have seen massive gains from doing very small things um, internally. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you and I have had some similar experiences there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, you know, and there's, there's still a vast number of federal government, you know, public facing federal government websites that are powered with, you know, really antiquated legacy um, content management systems um, that, you know, things like percussion, um, team site, you know, these huge Java platforms that cost you know, millions of dollars and just don't work very well. Yep. Um, and I also think there's, is particularly in, in the government space, there's too many cooks in the kitchen in terms of the procurement process, the decision-making process. Um, and, you know, it, it is what it is. I'm not sure it'll ever get streamlined. Mm, probably not. I mean, I, th- I think, I think the, the British government has done a much better job with their public facing government sites. So yeah, you know, they, they've taken quantum leaps forward yeah. from, from what I can see. I mean, just, if you just look at. Yeah. Gov.uk is, exactly. is, is great. It's impressive um, as hell. Yeah, it really is. And, and, you know, and I will say that after the debacle of um, healthcare.gov in 2013, when they yeah. first tried to launch it, um, and I actually worked on that site for uh, uh, after, on the team that worked on for a year. I worked really? on that site um, after it was fixed. Yeah, I was working for a smaller government contractor at the time that was part of the team that fixed it, uh, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And I didn't come onto that project till uh, I guess it was early 2016, and I worked on it for a little over a year. And it was it was fascinating. Um, it was really really interesting. Um, you know, from terms of the tech stack, I mean, I'm sure healthcare.gov doesn't actually have a content management system. No kidding. No, it's a, what, it, what does it run on? What is it? It's, um, it's a, it, you, you heard of a, you know what a static site generator is? Oh yeah. Yeah. So you've heard of Jekyll. Yeah. It's Jekyll. It's the world's biggest Jekyll site. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. And all the content is managed in GitHub, in a, in GitHub repos. And wow. Then, and then pushed out to Akamai. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's lightning fast because of yeah, it. Yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of overhead. And then there's a bunch of JavaScript framework um, uh, applications that are built into it. So it, there's some, there's some Angular, um, there's a couple of Angular applications. There's some React applications and, you know. Uh, you still though, I mean, I, that, that to me says that there are a lot of incredible people <laughs> doing a lot of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Every single minute of every single hour of every single day. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. It's incredible. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's, you, you know, you've, you've got that. And I think the, so after, after that debacle in 2013, um, the Obama administration formed the U S digital service, you know, trying to take a page from what the Brits did. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and that is still exists, and it's an, it's actually falls within the executive branch of the federal government. And you know, there's some great people there. You have um, internal sort of agencies like 18F, which is you know sort of an internal digital agency that lives within GSA, uh, and they do great work. work. And things like um, the U.S. Web Design Standards, which is a framework of front-end components and stuff, um, a library, you know, that's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, before I start, uh, started working on the project I'm currently working on, I was the lead designer redesigning Medicaid.gov um, for um, – and. and basically based on the U.S. web design standards. So we took their sort of what they, their branding and we moved it over into a front end design that was based on the U.S. Uh, web design standards. So it sounds like, and this is very heartening to hear, by the way, um, but it sounds like those entities have survived so far this current administration. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, the fact, that, <laughs> I mean, again, without sort of getting sort of, you know, rolling in the mud of our, yeah, our, I know. our current political morass. I'm um, trying not to, but, but, but that was one of my biggest concerns. Okay. I, yeah, felt like, yeah. I felt like a lot of strides were made. And, and those strides, those are still in place because the, the segment of the federal workforce that actually makes those decisions are not political appointees. I mean, they're That's so good. far down the food chain that I don't think it really affects them. I mean, you know, this current administration, you know, saying it's going to slash funding and and slash federal jobs. Well, all that means is companies like the one I work for, which is one of the, you know, and I work for a huge yeah. contractor. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just more, the work's got to get done. So, and, but there still is a mindset, I think, within you know, federal digital platforms, that that modernization train is still running. So uh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. No, I, th- I think it is. Yeah. I just, you know, it's, it's, you just want to see that. You want to see that continue. So that's, that's yeah. really is, I, I got to tell you, Pete, that's the first good news I've had <laughs> in quite a while Yeah, where the federal government is concerned. So that's that's really, yeah. really yeah. awesome to hear. Yeah, I mean, and you have, you have places like currently I'm working down at the U.S. Postal Service um, uh, on uh, redesigning some of the applications that live within USPS.com. Yeah, seems uh, like there's a lot of progress there. Yeah, it, no, it is. Uh, although I will say, I mean, some of the development practices – still need modernizing in terms of, of course. You know, the DevOps of it and stuff like that. But yeah, there, there is definitely, um, there, there's definitely a push to modernize and you're starting to see things like design systems um, come into play and, and true DevOps and cloud-based, you know, um, AWS is used extensively within federal websites because, they, it's FedRamped, so they have their own sort of secure corner of a, of Amazon Web Services that where sites can be hosted. So you're sorry, you, you see that, uh, and you see, you have companies like Booz Allen, who I work for, like you know, like some of the smaller ones that actually came out of the rescue of healthcare.gov, like Nava and Ad Hoc. You know, you you have staffers that, at those smaller companies that used to work in Silicon Valley, and they know how to do stuff the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I think the guy 
who is the current administrator of the U.S. Digital Service, is Matt Cutts, who was a longtime Google guy. He was one of the early engineers at Google. Mm-hmm. And the guy who, the original guy who was the administrator, Mikey, I can't remember his last name, um, left. He, his, his position was a political appointment. And when the Obama administration went out, you know, his, his appointment was done. So they brought, um, Matt Cutts came in as an interim to fill that. And I think he's still there, actually. So, so, so there's good stuff. I mean, there is good stuff going on. Yeah, it sounds that way. Yeah, it's, it's something. And you have companies like mine and others, you know, that are really trying to push modern user experience and development and design practices. Now, the, the part of the problem, ultimately, with it's really comes down to sort of the decision-making process. There's just still, within the federal digital space, there's so many hoops. Oh, yeah. That you have to jump through, and so oh, many, yeah. and so many cooks, you know, so many hands in that pot. <laughs> I, believe me, <laughs> I, I I do some government work every year, um, this year included, and, and and that's exactly right. There there are so many levels and so many layers, yeah. and, and so many people, yeah. And in every what I've seen, okay, is that at every every one of those levels, there are sort of two camps. There are people who are fighting like hell. To make things better. Yes. Um, because they care an awful lot uh, about how all this runs um, internally. They care an awful lot about how it affects the human beings on the receiving end. Even, you know, I- inside all these, these different branches and departments and agencies within the government. And then on the other side, you have people who sort of have their heads down and are tasked with doing a lot of other things where, where some of this stuff is kind of in their way, right? So they see it as, as disposable. They see it as, well, we'll deal with it later. Right. I, I can't say that I've, that I've encountered anybody who is sort of maliciously, you know, thinks it's a waste of time. I, I just feel like there's, there's so many pressing concerns on all these people and they all have responsibility. Like you said, there are a lot of cooks in this kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so many competing agendas and responsibilities I think it's damn difficult. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's very hard, um, and I think we you know we've come a long way in terms of the federal space. I mean, my joke is, well, for 15 years I worked for a faith based nonprofit. It was actually I worked for the Catholic Church. I was right. a prof- I was a right. professional Catholic. So. <laughs> Working for the most hierarchical organization on the planet prepared me very well to basically be a contractor to the second most hierarchical organization on the planet. Yeah, I believe that. The U.S. federal government. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're upgrading. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It, it is fascinating um, what's going on. And, and I think, you know, like the IRS, we, we, we were involved, the firm I worked for was involved in really modernizing um, a lot of uh, the IRS uh, public-facing website stuff. They finally migrated from, I think it was percussion to Drupal. And, you know, they they, they really did a true, you know, sort of user experience analysis. And it's it's way, way better than it was. Yeah, the website is certainly better. Uh, And I say that as as a small business owner myself. Um, because there are other issues, uh, of course, yeah. um, within the IRS in terms of, you know, it's where information goes to die right. in a lot of cases, but that has nothing to do with, with, with the website. What I do see in the public facing part and, and having to research things and having to access things is that it's gotten infinitely better, yeah. right? Leaps and bounds. Yeah. Uh, because otherwise, 
for instance, I had an ongoing problem for the last five years, okay, where we, we filed specific forms related to our business, mm -hmm. sent it certified mail five times with a letter, yeah. <laughs> okay, and, and a, a mountain of paper yep. and said, I've sent this to you five times now. You keep telling me you don't have it. Um, I know you have it. <laughs> I don't know where it went after this person signed for it, but you have it. It took five years wow. to get that taken care of. And the linchpin in the, in the last year that I went through this was really the increase in information on the website because I was able to find very specific information to sort of circumvent some of these departments I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. And were it not for that, this would still be going on. I, I know it would be. Well, I'm glad to hear it. That's yeah. I think, you know, so you, that's the good news. You know, there are there is a a sort of let's modernize this, let's make it better. And so, I mean, <laughs> it's funny. It's almost like you know, you think about federal websites and you just think, oh, bad design, bad UX. You know, nothing good about it. So you're starting. Sort of the expectations are pretty low. I actually think. You know, if you were to chart the progress, it's a quantum leap because everybody's expectations had been so low for so long. Yeah. Yep. So, so that's good, and 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 I think it's you know it's important. Um, and there's a lot of stuff we still don't see that's you know internal systems and and stuff like that as well, which are very important. I mean, the postal service is an interesting sort of user experience case study. In so much as, you know, USPS.com is actually something like a billion dollar a year e-commerce site. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I mean, you know, it's very, very widely used. Interestingly enough, my first federal project a little over four years ago was an internal intranet uh, IA project at Postal. Wow. When I first got, hi got hired. And the user base, so this was the part of the U.S. Postal Service's intranet, what they call blue, mm -hmm. you know, po postal blue, which is, you know, it's powered by this very, very old legacy enterprise software platform, which is a beast, but whatever. Um, and it was to reorganize, you know, the content just within the human resources section of that. So the user base was management level postal employees. The user base for this intranet, not public facing, was bigger than many public facing websites. It was 250,000 management employees at the Postal Service. Wow. Huge. Yeah. I mean, the Postal Service has something like six or 700,000 employees. And that's just the US, USPS.com. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> right. Postal Service. It's, like, it's crazy. Talk about a challenge. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the scale, and that's the thing I think a lot of people just don't know the scale. I mean, I, I remember I was doing some work after that when I went to HHS for a while. I actually worked with Ann Doherty, who you had on. We used to work together. At, um, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. HHS, the sort of the secretary of HHS, I think oversees something like 70 or 80,000 federal employees. That's just HHS. <laughs> Massive. Yeah. So the scale, that's, the, I mean, the point is, is that when you get to organizations that have that kind of scale, there's unique challenges that go way beyond what, you know, most product designers or developers are, 
are having to deal with. Absolutely. It's a whole different universe. Yeah. I mean, on, on yeah. every level. Yep. On every level. You know, the, the geez, I mean, the technical and development challenges alone Mm-hmm. Um, from front end all to mid tier stuff to back end are are are, are enough in and of themselves yep. to just totally absorb every second of your life. Yeah, and any given project, you might have three or four different contractors working on something. Yep. So it's it, it's interesting and unique. Um, but if somebody could go in and I mean, this might take like the rest of time to do this, the process map, what happens. Yeah. 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 Because at any given time, you're only looking at a slice of it. Yeah. You know, yeah. to get your, to get your head and your arms around it's, the entire yeah. <laughs> part. is just, Right. 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 When I, when I've done, you know, whiteboard process work, which is always a part of my engagements with government agencies in particular. Um, it's an amazing exercise because the board is never big enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, you start down one path and you start trying to diagram all these offshoots of, of people and process and paper and information and everything else. And it just goes off the rails, you know, 30 minutes in, you're like, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, need, yeah. we need a couple of days, I think, to do this. Yeah. And you're only talking about a small department. Right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. There's other places that have similar challenges. I mean, I think, you know, I spending 15 years in a very large international humanitarian aid organization that was a global organization. CRS had similar challenges being of the scale it was. Um, the other place that I think is pretty, you know, has big challenges is higher ed. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've done work for higher ed. I have. That's a, you, that's very unique there because, um, so I, I, spent some time out at the University of Notre Dame mm-hmm. in um, South Bend uh, a, a day there visiting with their internal web team. And they have a v- really good internal, you know, communications department. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I was out there was, um, this is when I was still at Catholic Relief Services, The in- our incoming CEO and president had been a dean at the business school there. And so, you know, I just thought, oh, let me go out and talk to these guys. They, I knew about them. There were some developers and designers who I had followed on Twitter and stuff that I knew about. So I went there to, to talk to them. This will blow your mind. University of Notre Dame mm-hmm. by itself has 350 standalone websites. Wow. <laughs> 350. Yeah. <laughs> That's, and in a way, I'm going to tell you what, it's 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 shocking number to hear out loud. Yeah. At the same time, uh, my son is going to University of Maryland here mm-hmm. shortly. Yeah. Um, at the end of this year, and 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 of course, we've been dealing with their websites. Yep. Yep. It blows my mind at the level of disconnect. Oh yeah. And the number of sites that we've had to use to do things that you would think you could do, are, could do it. are logically connected, but yeah. they are yeah. not. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I did some. I've done some freelance work for University of Maryland um, for the, the performing arts department oh. years ago, and um, yeah, no, it's the same thing. And, and so, from a UX and sort of design perspective, they really need to have design systems. They were actually yeah. the first yep. type of organization that I started seeing. You know, sort of the precursors of true design systems being put into place. Yeah. And design systems are a huge interest of mine, um, uh, and and they're you know they're a hot thing right now. But you're starting you know you're starting to see that. Um, 
media organizations. The BBC actually published probably the very first early design system in the form of their global experience language that they published back in, I think it was 2006. And so that, you know, that stuff to me is, that's where frameworks are really important. Agreed. Totally agree. Because they're, 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 they're not at that sort of level where they're generating the code base or anything like that, or, or even defining the user, you know, the, the UI elements, they're the encapsulation of everything that's needed for your digital product or your digital product universe for your organization. Yeah. But from an organizational standpoint, see, this is one of those areas, higher ed in particular, one of those um, industries, if you will, where I think there are some significant organizational challenges Mm -hmm. that have to be overcome first in in terms of how they procure and implement technology. I see a lot of handicaps. I'll put it to you that way. In, In the things that they are sort of forced to use. Yep. Yeah, because the people making those decisions are removed from technology. Yes, well, you have that. I mean, that that same thing happens in the federal government. Of course, um, it does, um, and, and it happens in nonprofits as well. So, I guess my question that I'm getting to for you in particular: What do you do about that? How do you change it? I mean, I agree with the the power of frameworks and 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 the fact that the solution is sort of obvious, right? Yeah. How do they get there? Well, that's where I think really trying to hone in on asking the question, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah. Because a lot of times an organization, let's let's keep it sort of or you know, type of organization agnostic, might say, I need more subscribers. I need, you know, blah, blah, blah. I need this. Well, maybe what you need is a good, well thought out email marketing program. You don't necessarily need a whole new content management system. Right. Yeah, I agree. Maybe, maybe you need a good welcome series. You know, if you're a nonprofit, maybe you need a good welcome series um, of, of emails that, you know, sort of brings a, an interested person along the journey from, you know, interested in the work the organization is doing to maybe being an advocate for the organization to then maybe being a donor to the organization to then maybe being a legacy mm-hmm. donor to the I mean, this was a challenge we had at CRS was how do we manage that? We had lots of different types of end users who were coming to our website and supporting our organization. And so, and colleges and universities are no different. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the unfortunate reality, and, I, and I've experienced this in, in other organizations, is that the, the pain has to be clear. Yeah. You know, the pain that they're experiencing as a result of those things has to be very clear and very felt in order for somebody to say, okay, I know that we've mandated using this product, this higher ed product in the past, and I'm not going to name any names, mm-hmm. but it is now starting to cost us a great deal of time and money. And it's increasing the level of support we have to give to students 20 fold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and okay, maybe now it's time to consider something else. And, and in my experience, that process takes a long time before the folks with the purse strings start feeling that pain Yes. before they throw up their hands and say, okay, I know we've always done it this way with this product. Maybe it's time for something else. 
Yeah, and I mean, and if you're lo- if you're talking about products like learning management systems, I am. Th- then you know that's that's really gets complicated yeah. because yes, you is. know there's basically one big player in that arena. <laughs> yep, and it's terrible, and, and, and it's not good. It's um, terrible. Oh. I mean, the, the the level of of sloppiness, yeah, in that product just blows my mind. Absolutely blows my mind. I actually had a friend and former colleague who worked with me uh, about three years ago in the federal space who left and went to work for this company. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, <laughs> she said, oh, you wouldn't believe the dysfunction here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, I bet I would. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, for, for, you know, that particular, um, you know, learning management platform. Um, although there are some that are worse. Really? Believe it or not. Yeah. I taught at UB for a while. Um, nah, same here. Uh, <laughs> as a, uh, and, um, and whatever they use is, is, is worse than, you know, the, the big player. It's, uh, or at least they, whatever they were using at the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I refused I, I put all my coursework. I built WordPress sites for the courses I taught, and put all my coursework there. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep, yep. I think I think I was using. Um, oh my god, I can't remember. It's Adobe's product for virtual. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Classrooms that was great, um, and I did the same thing you did. I was posting stuff in a private area of my own WordPress site. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I wasn't using the the sanctioned <laughs> product. Right, right. right. What was uh, Adobe Connect? I think yeah, yeah, was yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's what it was. I mean, Adobe, I mean, look, Adobe's got its own problems. Of course. Well, they're a big fish. They're a big. They're a big fish. They own the market. Although they're getting a run for their money right now, in terms of design software yes. and design tools from Sketch. Yeah, and what they're what they're experiencing is the same thing, and you probably remember this. Um, having done this work for a while, they're experiencing the same thing that Quark experienced oh, yeah. when InDesign first came out. Okay, When yes. Adobe InDesign came out, Quark essentially said, nope, you're going to pay us $800 um, for the software. And if you need to upgrade in any way, shape, or form, it's another $800. And we kind of don't care <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what, what these features that, that users had been screaming about yeah. you know, for a solid 10 years. I remember Quark reps coming um, to talk to us where I worked. Yeah. And their response was basically, well, yeah, you can have that maybe if you pay this. And so InDesign came along and said, hey, 99 bucks if you have a Quark license, it's yours. Yeah. And, and Adobe buried them. Yeah. yeah. Quickly. Yeah. And I think finally the same thing is starting to happen to them. It's, it's like I said a minute ago about pain. Yep. Okay. They have to really feel it before they start to say, you know what? we've gotten a little lazy here. Yep. You know, sketch is 99 bucks. Exactly. And it's, it's great. It's, it's a wonderful program. I spend most of my time, my day using sketch. Um, not that, you know, the, the, the tool doesn't make you a good designer. Of course not. But you know, there are sort of things within the design software tooling that can make it easier to do things. I mean, I think in some ways, one of my other sort of great advantages is I spent a lot of time, to, you know, creating objects as a as a younger person and in the first half of my working life. So essentially, designing and creating user experience with, you know, actual physical objects. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I don't come out of a print design background. <laughs> I'm not dragging any of that baggage with me, <laughs> which is a good thing. Which which is a good thing. 
Um, and, and I think it, it, it makes a huge difference, um, particularly on the, you know, the interface design side, because there are constraints that you have to deal with, design constraints. Constraints are a good thing. Oh, I totally agree. And, and I think print designers, unfortunately, because I was one, okay, I started out yeah. um, in print design. There was no internet. Right. But I will tell you that the way I was taught design is very, very, very 100,000% different than the way most print designers learn design. And I think that's unfortunate because they have been shortchanged yep. Yep. by their educations. I really firmly believe that because I was able to make the transition to digital with no problem. The principles were exactly the same. The things that I was taught to pay attention to right. are exactly the same. Right. And if you go back to pure design principles, that's what you'll find. I think a lot of these folks, unfortunately, have, have been given a, this is just my opinion, okay? I really feel like they've given been given a bad hand and that baggage that you're talking about is the result of that. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I basically came from this, sort of had a similar experience from you without having been a print designer because- Right, but you learned, you learned the same principles though. Exactly. You learned the same principles in, in, in working with your hands that you're applying now. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, you know, talking about design education, so uh, you know who Mike Montero is? Oh, sure. Um, so did you ever, did you read that median piece that he published uh, earlier this year? Um, called Designs Lost Generation. I may have. I, I read. I read his stuff um, every once in a while when I have <laughs> free free minutes, and there's so much of it I don't even recognize it by the titles anymore. Right, right. It's it's a great piece, and I actually heard him read it on a, on a podcast I was listening to. But what it was talking about was ethics in design. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Okay, which I think is another super super important thing. Yeah, you know, a, as we're sort of reaching this point in the early part of the 21st century where, you know, we're now making these products and it's like, okay, should we be doing this? Yeah. It's the great power, great responsibility kind of thing. I agree. And that stuff is important. I think, I think younger designers are starting to recognize that. I think as we talk about it more, um, I think it changes, you know, people in positions of influence like Mike, mm -hmm. um, I spent some time with, with Alan Cooper, Mm -hmm. um, last year. And, and this was, he's a fascinating guy. Yeah. One of the things that he talked about incessantly, okay. Um, in, in the conversations that we all had as a group and in his, his talk at this conference I was at was all about responsibility and stewardship. And that is his thing right now. And he is pushing it as hard as he possibly can. And I think it's great. Mike is doing the exact same thing. Erica Hall yep, yep. Um, is doing the exact same thing. I just listened to a podcast with her yeah. That man, I wanted to stand up and cheer. I, yeah. you know, she kept saying, we have to stop glorifying these things in a way that, that turns them away from, from humanity, you know? Oh yeah. I, I think, I, I think I listened to this. It was that she was on presentable with Jeffrey Bean. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Who's great. There are voices out there talking about it and talking about, you know, the responsibility and pushing, companies, you know, like Adobe and, and, and to, to really think about this stuff. Yeah. It's about people. I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes back to human beings. I said this in the, in the, in an interview I just did earlier this week, 
Um, and I'm going to say it again. I, I really feel like Peter at, at this point in my career, I, I feel like everything I do, <laughs> I want it to be an antidote to bullshit because I just feel like a lot of the human aspects of what we do are, are being lost in the conversation and, and I want to bring it back there. Yes. Well, hey, this gets back to your point about, you know, frameworks and, and sort of soft technology doing the, the work that humans should be doing. 99.9% of the, of the problems we're trying to solve are not technology problems. Agreed. They're, they're people problems. Agreed. They're human problems. You know, Silicon Valley is, is very culpable in this. They want to disrupt everything with, you know, the latest shiny robotic whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> technology is great and technology is terrible at the same time. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're learning some very hard lessons right now. We are. Um, and so uh, it's like, you know, how is this thing, this widget, this whatever that I am working on, going to make your life better or easier or give you five more minutes of your time back so you can read your son or daughter a story. Right, right. Or the, con the converse of that, is it going to harm you in some way? Yeah. Is it going to expose something about you that you don't want exposed or shouldn't be exposed? Right. I mean, you mentioned Mike, okay, and, and I mentioned Alan. Both of those folks have essentially in very loud voices said, look, if you work on these projects and you knowingly do this work, you are in fact responsible. And, yes. and I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. I have turned down plenty of things in my career that I didn't feel comfortable with. And I get that that's a hard decision to make. I get that there is privilege yep. um, in some cases where you have the luxury of saying no, but I will also say at the same time that one of the most important lessons I ever learned in the slowly approaching three decades of, of doing this is to say no to things that cause that tight feeling in your chest. Yeah. Yep. Someone tried to teach me that at a younger age and I wasn't ready to hear it. Yep. Um, but it turns out to be one of the most valuable things anyone ever taught me. Yeah. It matters because the implications of doing the work anyway are far reaching and the way it weighs on your heart and your soul <laughs> are far reaching as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, I mean, you now have companies like Google where, you know, engineers at Google saying, oh, our AI was used for weapons. Yeah. I don't think I want to be working on that. <laughs> right. Right. You know, the Facebook thing, right? Move fast and break things. Okay. Well, you, you certainly broke some things. Right. Right. And some people along the way, and it's still happening. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I completely agree. And, and I know it's not as simple as saying, well, we'll just say no. I mean, nothing in life is that black and white or that easy. I get it. No, no, um, no. But that power really does start with the people in the lower trenches who feel like they don't have any power. They have more than they, they have more than they think. Yep. Now it's interesting. I would be curious to see where it goes as digital products worm their way into, you know, places we never thought they would be. I mean, I drive an all electric car now. I, I, I finally bit the bullet, made the decision. I'm, I'm not buying another internal combustion engine car. Cool. <laughs> um, I approached acquiring that vehicle the same way I approached acquiring a new 
mobile phone. It was just another gadget I was going to buy or, 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 or lease. Uh, um, and it's, it's just like a big piece of technology. It's, it's not a Tesla. It's a, you know, it's a Chevy Bolt, but it gets, gets the same range as a, as a Tesla in terms of a full, on a full charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the, the display and everything. And, you know, it's like pretty soon we're going to be designing interfaces for the inside door panel of your automobile. Yep. It's coming. That day is coming. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're at the point where I get to ask you some difficult questions. Okay. Or at least interesting questions. They don't have to be difficult, I guess. Well, I'm, I'm ready. What is, what is something that we don't know about you? What is something that most people don't know about you, but, but that they probably should? Well, I mean, we already talked about my career as an artisan, as a studio potter. Right. Let's see. Um, <laughs> it's a good question. Difficult it's a good right? question. Yeah, it's a it's a good question. Um, well, let's let's phrase it a different way. What's a hidden talent that you have that not many people know about? Well, uh, I am a really good cook. <laughs> there you go. And I've been making delicious food for as long as I've been making things with my hands, for as long as I've been defining user experience in some way or another which is to say most of my life. Mm-hmm. And I started cooking when I was 12 years old, you know, so wow. same time. Um, so to me, food was just another material to be creative with. I love that. And, you know, and early on, leather was, you know, was the first material I worked with to sort of make objects. And then it was clay and, you know, now it's pushing pixels around. But at the end of the day, to me, it all comes back to creating a really great experience mm-hmm. for people, for humans. I mean, this, this comes back to trying to connect all of this to our enjoyment. Yeah. To people, to people. The other thing is I'm, I'm an internal optimist. Uh, I mean, I, I, I really am is with all the, you know, all the crap going on in the world. I, I still am an optimist. I always have been. Um, when my, my wife and I, when we got married, you know, part of our wedding vows were that I'm a glass half full person and she's a glass half empty person. And so we balance each other out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, balance is important. Yeah. So I, I mean, I am, uh, I'm a skeptical optimist in, internally. Uh, and, and I, I do think that, you know, there's goodness pretty much almost anywhere. And, and that like, We've, we've talked a lot about the challenges that, you know, you and I face in our, in our day-to-day work and, you know, that you know, happens when you get to sort of um, organizations of scale that are trying to do something right. But I think the, you know, if the intent to, to improve and make something better is there, you'll find a way. I mean, the process may be suck all the wind out of your sails, but you'll get there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And the journey is never what you think it's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm also been a practicing Buddhist for, I don't know, 45, 50 years. Uh, I think, you know, I think I knew that about you because that's something that, although I'm, I wouldn't call myself practicing, (laughs) but I think that is something that, that you and I share. Yeah. My, my joke was, you know, I'm a nice Jewish boy. I was a professional Catholic for 15 years and I've been a practicing Buddhist for most of my life. So that's my spiritual tripod. Spiritual tripod. I like that. (laughs) I like that. What's the last book you read? Actually, it was Ready. Uh, it was Ready Player One. Was it? Yeah. Uh, I tend to go between fiction and nonfiction. I'm a big nonfiction consumer, so I, I tend to jump in between the two. So I also, because of my interest in food, I read a lot of. So the book I read before that was a fabulous book, but it was written by um, 
uh, Edward Lee, who's a chef. He was actually a top chef contestant. He owns a restaurant in Louisville. Mm-hmm. It was basically he took some time and traveled around the country to different communities of immigrant communities to find out about the food of those immigrant communities, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had no idea that Dearborn, Michigan had the large, has the largest Muslim population of any community in the U.S. Wow. I didn't know that either. And that, you know, Patterson, New Jersey is a Mecca for Peruvian food. So it was, it was really interesting. That's really cool. Anyway. Um, so I go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction, but. What brings you the most joy? Creating something that people enjoy, that people enjoy using. So whether it's a meal, a well-prepared meal, whether it's an interface that I've designed, whether it's a conversation I've had with them, even if it's a difficult conversation because I had that conversation with them in a way that we can just agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I, there's a, there's a person on Facebook that I'm connected to who probably couldn't be more different than I am politically, mm-hmm. but we have fascinating back and forth because it's respectful. Yeah. I mean, even that, you know, sort of kind of experience. So anytime I can sort of facilitate or be part of creating an experience that people think is a positive experience, that's, I think that's a good, that brings me a lot of joy. No, I think that's a great answer. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, other than walking both of my daughters down the aisle last year for their weddings, four months apart, you know. Wow. Incredible. (laughs) Yeah. That's incredible. And you're still standing. I'm still standing. (laughs) (laughs) And my bank account is off of life support. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Both my girls got married last year. Congratulations. That's fantastic. So last question. All right. For younger designers, developers, UXers, people coming up in this discipline one way or the other, Mm -hmm. what do you think is the most important piece of advice you would have to offer them, having done this for so long in so many different ways and having touched so many parts of user experience? Um, I would say two things. I would say learn how to be a really good listener. I mean, a really good listener. Yeah. And write, learn how to write Mm. because anybody can learn how to use a design tool. Anybody can learn how to write code. I mean, for some people it's easier than others, but pay attention, listen, be responsible for sort of your actions. Understand that what you're creating is for the most wily, not unstable, but, um, you know, unpredictable entity in creation, a human being. (laughs) (laughs) Truer words were never spoken. (laughs) So, you know, you really, uh, and, 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 you know, don't lose sight of what the problem you're trying to solve is. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Thanks. Thanks. Peter, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. This has been a great conversation. I feel like I could probably do this for another couple hours. (laughs) Yeah. So, so can I, but it's been great. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. So, uh, same here. And, and maybe we'll get to do it again sooner rather than later. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would love to sort of keep, you know, keep in touch, keep the conversation going. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Have a great day. You too, Peter. Talk to you soon. Yes, sir. That wraps up this edition of making UX work. Thanks for listening. And I hope hearing these stories provides some useful perspective and encouragement. 
along with a reminder that you're not alone out there. Before I go, I want you to know that you can find show notes and links to the things mentioned during our conversation by visiting givegoodux.com slash podcast. You'll also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it's people like you who make UX work.